just as I was reading just now. It's funny, I, I, you know, in, in the course of a week, I read a passage lots and lots of times and reflect on it, write it out, think about it, and, and all sorts of things. But there's nothing quite like standing and reading with a congregation. And something new, even as I was reading it just now, just came to me. We have a, a, a um, oh, what's that plant called? Lonicera and the um, honeysuckle, that's the one, in our garden. And uh, actually, we inherited it. When we lived in Plymouth, when we moved into our house in Plymouth seven-odd years ago, eight years ago, this honeysuckle was in a pot, and it did nothing. Grew a few green leaves each year, nothing else. Um, we actually brought it with us in this pot because we then kind of put a little pergola thingy up and it was all kind of there. And again, we planted it and it did nothing. For two years, it did nothing. And Angela actually was like, oh, come on, let's just get rid of it. We moved it one more time to a different part of the garden. Last year and this year, it has produced the most beautiful flowers. And it just struck me, that kind of illustration of the fig tree, that actually, as it's tended and it finds the right soil, so it's able to flourish. And maybe there's a word in there as well. We'll come back to the fig tree. Because before we get to the fig tree, or the honeysuckle, we get to to two quite bizarre incidents that, that aren't really reflected anywhere else in Scripture. And uh, so it probably would help just to look at them for a second and just try and uh, figure out what was going on. Josephus, the Roman historian, is probably one of the best places to find a little bit of what maybe went on here in verse 1 and 2 as as we see that Pilate had mixed the blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices. What's that all about? Well, it seems that that Pilate was actually not a particularly gentle ruler. And it would seem that what is going on here is that at some point, some Galileans had gone up to the temple and Pilate had squashed whatever was going on by actually killing a whole bunch of peoples as they'd gone to sacrifice that there had been some kind of uprising that had been squashed. And that kind of makes sense with what maybe is being referred to here. That some people were killed at the temple by Pilate as they came to offer their sacrifices. That's that kind of mixing the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. Not very nice. And then the other thing that's mentioned is a little bit more kind of self-explanatory, that a tower, in a kind of just a disaster, fell on a bunch of people and killed 18 people. Two awful events, slightly different in how they came about. One, seemingly kind of random as, as a bit of building fell. The other, motivated by kind of human Hatred, unpleasantness, selfishness, whatever it was that that got into Pilate's mind as these people were killed. What a mess is described there. It was a common understanding at the time 
And this is where Jesus picks up on these two things. That actually, bad things happen to bad people. That was quite a common interpretation of how things were back in in, in Jesus' day. You can see it in, in Scripture as a kind of a way of thinking. Back in Job, in Job chapter 4, there's a guy called Eliphaz, who terribly sensitive points out to Job, who has lost just about everything. Family, home, wealth, everything has gone. And Eliphaz says to him, Ah, Job, those who plough evil, those who sow trouble, well, they reap it, old son. Basically saying, you must have done something wrong, pal, in order to deserve the disaster that's come upon you. See, again, in in, in John's Gospel, where in John chapter 9, there's a question asked of a blind man, where they say, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. So there was a notion back then that suffering, that, that, that pain, was, well, somebody had something coming to them. And actually, that's not so far away from some of our reasons today. You hear it said, don't you? Well, he had it coming. He got everything he deserves. Kind of comes out in us just occasionally, doesn't it? We might not quite articulate it as it is here, but that can be a reaction we have. And to be fair, sometimes when something happens to somebody, you kind of could see it coming. So sometimes there is a kind of a justifiable sense of saying that. Whether that's kind or not, I'm not sure. But the danger is that we end up in a place of self-righteousness, of saying, well, they, they're far worse than I am. Look at them. And we end up ignoring the state of our own hearts, the state of our own sinfulness. Jesus' point in those first few verses is that each and every one of us is a sinner. And each and every one of us needs to turn away from a self-focused way of living to a Jesus-focused way of living, to repent, to change our thinking and our actions to put whatever might be at the centre of our life to the edge so that God can be at the centre and all that he gives us can be radiating out from that rather than God being a kind of a little box over here and actually me and my desires and ambitions are at the centre. Just think about Matthew chapter 7, middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses a fab analogy where he says, why don't you take the plank out of your own eye before you try and take the speck out of somebody else's eye? So often as humanity, we can see the faults of others. 
but we don't dare take time to look for what's going on in our own situation. And Jesus is warning here. Nah, don't, don't think that just because those things happened to those people, they had it coming, and you, you are just fine. You need to look at where you stand before God, and you need to respond. I wonder, does anyone recognise these names? Naphtali Frankel, Gilad Shea, and Eyal Yifrach. Or maybe Mohammed Abdu, Abu Qadir. Does anyone recognise those names? Say again. The last one. Killed in Jerusalem recently. Three Jewish students murdered. One Palestinian young man murdered. Some kind of political, territorial, pseudo-religious thing going on where people were murdered this week. Young men stolen from their families. Does anyone know what happened in Bella Horizonte this week? Other than a bit of football. A flyover collapsed, killing two people. Do those things have a kind of a resonance with what we've just read? A bridge collapsing on two people and killing them, injuring others. Some young men murdered because of some kind of religious, political thing going on in in Palestine and in Israel. I don't know that our thoughts would be, they had it coming, so much as deep sadness. And maybe, maybe why? Why would God let that happen? Those boys... They had their lives ahead of them. Why would a good God let that happen? Seems to me that that is perhaps more a question that we ask today. More a way of trying to wrestle with what's going on than, than just trying to explain, oh, well, bad people, bad stuff happens to them. Maybe we think it's a slightly more sophisticated way of going. And in some ways... I get it. But why would a good God allow suffering like that? Or maybe actually you're sitting there thinking, why would a good God let me suffer the way I am today? Or the way my friend or my family member is today? Why? Is God really there? I find that a difficult question to respond to quickly. In fact, I find it a difficult question to respond to full stop. Because actually, with suffering, I can't imagine what it must be like to be in those families in Palestine this weekend. can't imagine what it must be like to be the relatives of those who were killed by that flyover falling down. 
with any suffering. There is so much emotion. There's also often physical pain that is felt. Loss, bereavement, anger, frustration. Those things are strong, real, understandable emotions in the midst of a mess. But let me say this. If you conclude, as, as many may do, that the existence of suffering must disprove the existence of God, let me just say this to you. Even if you were to accept that, which I don't, you'll be reassured to know, doesn't deal with the suffering, actually. Even if we were to say, well, God can't exist because of suffering. Suffering is still there. Some of it we can attribute to humanity's insanity and selfishness and greed. But there are things that are much harder to work through. We can't quite figure them out. So I'd come back to chapter 13. Verses 1 to 5. Please don't let horrible, difficult circumstances, unexplainable tragedy, please don't let it divert you from the truth that we see in Scripture. Because actually, I, I believe there is another way to respond to suffering. I don't think it's an exclusively Christian perspective that our world is in a mess for all sorts of reasons. But actually, the Bible points us to sin as the root of where the mess came from. In Genesis chapter 3, we have an account of Adam and Eve, where the tree of knowledge in the garden bore forbidden fruit. It offered wisdom to be gained, but to be gained without submission to the Creator. And that's where our problem started. See, from that point on, the created order was messed up. Our relationship with the Creator was fractured. But there began the story of God, expressed in Scripture, wanting to restore relationship with us, His creation. Not by forcing it upon us, not by making us into robots that all have to believe, but actually by allowing us to approach with faith. It's a compelling story that you see in this book. There's two things I want us to look at in the midst of a world where there is constantly suffering whether that's now for you or you see it on the news. 
I want to say that there is consolation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is hope in the gospel of Jesus. First of all, consolation. Sometimes that can feel pretty... Um, shallow. Sometimes people, when, when, when they come alongside us, when things are really, really tough, and they try to console us, you kind of think, yeah, come on. <laughs> Don't really mean anything to me. But actually, let us be consoled by the fact that the God who made this universe who made all the beauty that is around us, who made each of us, didn't remain at arm's length and just kind of made the world spin round and left it be. He came. He came amongst us and he suffered pain, physical, real pain, Humiliation, social isolation, rejection, torture, injustice, temptation. Ultimately, death. You chose the cross, we just sang. God knows what it is to suffer. So if you are suffering today, don't hear this glibly, but hear it as it's intended, that there is consolation in knowing that the God of the universe has suffered. Often, we mean well when we get alongside someone who is suffering. We mean well as we say, I know how you feel. But you know, when that's happened to me so often, I say, no, you don't. I don't say that out loud. That's not very socially acceptable. But inside I'm saying, no, you don't. Because you're not me. You might have experienced something similar, so thank you for trying to stand alongside me. But please don't say you know how I feel. Because how I feel is how I feel. We do need to be careful that we, we don't try to kind of diminish. And I don't think people do try to diminish when they say that, what people are feeling. But maybe to just stand with people. If we get our words wrong, then hey. And if somebody stands alongside you and says, I know how you feel and and you really, really kind of want to say, no, you don't, maybe just bless them <laughs> rather than punch them, <laughs> okay? But maybe rejoice that actually somebody else has had something similar and they're trying to reach out to you. But more importantly, hear the consolation that your Creator <coughs> has suffered and does see and understand your pain. Jesus went through terrible suffering. 
And it is a place where we may be consoled by his experiences. But there is also hope. There is also hope in Jesus in the midst of suffering. Now I've got a really stupid example of this. Because I kind of don't want to diminish anybody's suffering. And so this is a really daft illustration. Please don't assume that the the worst suffering I have ever experienced is in this little illustration. I've got a fountain pen. It was given to me by Angela's parents. And I love it. It's just the right weight. It's just the right width. It just writes well. I really love writing with this fountain pen. But about a year ago, I lost the lid. And I was really ticked off. I was just really knocked that I'd lost the lid to my fountain pen. It had gone. And for a few days, I came down into the sanctuary here and I had a look around, had a look in all these bits and pieces here. Couldn't find it. So I thought, oh, well, there you go. Hey-ho. But each time I went up to my study, I kind of left it on my desk with a, like a felt tip lid on it. And every time I picked it up, I thought, no, that's really annoying. It's really annoying that I've lost the lid of my favourite fountain pen. You're now thinking, he is pathetic. But <laughs> I didn't hear that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I better not tread on it. But about six months later, How bizarre is this? I was out in the garden just outside the door here. And I found the lid. And I kind of went, yes, it's the lid to my fountain pen. I was really excited. He really confirmed myself as quite sad. But there we go. Sorry? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it did turn my morning to joy. But I... I was so chuffed because I, I got my little fountain pen back and it was complete again. It was restored to what it should be. I was so pleased. And the hope that is in the gospel is that actually we will one day be restored, brand new, complete. No more suffering. No more tears or pain. That might be a little bit like this, that it happens in the course of our living days. It might be. But it's in eternity. Last book in the Bible, Revelation. Chapter 21 affirms this where it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. John, given a vision of what was yet to come. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. You see, our hope in the midst of suffering is that if we are in relationship with Jesus, our suffering will come to an end, just as the resurrection of Jesus pointed to the end of death, the end of suffering, and the restoration to something new. There's a key phrase in there. Relationship with Jesus. We need to have a relationship with Jesus. We need to repent, as Jesus was saying, in verses 1 to 5 of Luke 13. Even if we are suffering, we need to repent. We need to turn to Jesus, even if stuff really, really stinks for us. We need to turn to Jesus, acknowledge our frailties, and ask him to forgive our sins. I don't know if you noticed in, in those first few verses of chapter 13, the word all is repeated several times. Do you think that these Galileans were worse than all the other Galileans? No. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. The same thing's repeated again. We mustn't conclude that because we suffer or we see suffering in the world, but therefore we keep God at arm's length because, well, I'm not going to believe in God because there's all that suffering out there. That isn't going to resolve anything. But actually, we do still need to turn to Christ. It might not actually diminish the suffering that we are currently in, though praise God, sometimes God chooses for his glory to change circumstances, to heal and restore. But sometimes we continue to suffer. But how will we do that? We sometimes fall for the lie that being a Christian makes everything hunky-dory. It doesn't. But actually, we do have a hope and a consolation in a God who is prepared to suffer and die for us and will restore all things. See, God wants to meet us in our mess. He wants to hold us in our mess. Just as we might hold a small child as they wade through a puddle. Just as Caris and Hannah and Angela yesterday helped each other slop through the mud. God wants to hold us in our mess and bring us on through it. Unconsciously, I haven't even touched the parable yet, so I'll be brief with the parable. That second bit of the reading where it talks about a fig tree. But I think that, that first bit is just so important because suffering is a big, a big deal for us and for many people. I don't want to dismiss it in, in glib terms, but I want us to hold on to some truth there. 
There are two points, I think, that, that Jesus is making in the parable, very quickly. First of all, God in his mercy wants to extend a chance to all who hear him. And he wants us to respond. This image of fruitfulness of the fig. Actually, throughout Luke's Gospel, he talks about fruitfulness. A fig tree, well, fruit's what it does. A vine, well, fruit is what it does. Produces grapes. Actually, if we have a relationship with God, well, fruit is what should come. Because we are, maybe little by little, step by step, being transformed because we allow God to be at the centre. Allow him to transform us from the inside outwards. But he is saying you need to respond. It's kind of tricky because we, we live in a country that is, I guess, broadly Christian these days. Lots of people would say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. But actually, that's as far as it goes. It's a kind of a census thing. What's your religion? Well, I'm Christian. But actually, what Jesus is saying, uh-uh. Going to church, actually, doesn't make you a Christian. I heard somebody once say that it's, it's like going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Just doesn't add up. What makes you a Christian is what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your life. And that doesn't make you a super person, but it just makes you a person who recognises, actually, I'm a human being. I'm loved by God. And he wants me to live the way he created me to live. And I need his help to do that. To exercise the gifts he's given me. To exercise the mind he's given me. To exercise the talents that he's given me. To steward my family and my, my friendships and my money. I need God's help. And I can be more the person he made me to be. Second point, after extending mercy, is saying that there will be a time when it's too late. There will be a time where it is too late. Kind of harrowing. And we don't know what happened to those Galileans who were offering their sacrifices. We don't know what, where those, those folks that were crushed by the Tower of Siloam, where they stood before God. We don't know how those young men in Palestine and Israel stood before God. We don't know what happened with those two people crushed in that flyover. But there will be a point where it's too late to respond to Jesus and to his grace. His saying that actually I died for you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn my love. It's there. Just turn to me. Now is the time to do that. Now is the time in this parable, now is the time in Five Head 
in July 2014, I can't even see the date, the 6th of July, to respond to Jesus. Have you? Have you turned your life to Jesus? How might you live that out this week? Maybe it's simple, small steps. Maybe just as I speak, there's something and you think, yeah, okay, I need to try and just give that bit into God's hands because I haven't been doing that. Maybe there's a big thing that we need to trust into God's hands this week. Maybe it's our hearts for the first time. Maybe for you this week it's about really, really standing alongside somebody. Doing it in God's strength, in God's wisdom, with his help, recognising that, yeah, I've got gifts, but I need God to guide me. Maybe you need to be attentive to God in that this week. Submit to him before you speak. Submit to him in what you're thinking. Is that honouring to God? Or do I need to change that way of thinking? Same with our actions. Is that honouring to God? Or actually... If Jesus was stood right there, he'd be saying, come on, there's a better way. Bear fruit. We live in challenging days. But God wants us to walk with him in the midst of mess. Mess.